Thank you, worship team, leading us there in song. The Lord is our salvation. Amen. 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 Well, good morning, and welcome to our church. Welcome to our church, which we uh, call Grace Bible Church. We've been here for almost seven years. Uh, it's coming up in January, it'll be seven years that we've been in here in Gainesville preaching the gospel and, and praying that we've been faithful for those seven years. So I'm thankful for that, and so we're looking forward to another, another year coming up in 2024. We actually, our, our anniversary is in January, so it's basically year to year. Uh, so we'll be in 2024 coming up, and just looking forward to that. We're looking forward to the holiday uh, time. I pray that, you know, for those times that we definitely as a church would remember uh, the, the reason that we would celebrate uh, Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving to the Lord. Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas, that we would look to the Lord and His birth and, and remember His, his birth uh, there over 2,000 years ago. So, again, welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that your week has been encouraging. Angie and I, we started our week with our daughter down at uh, the state championship, at the volleyball state championship in Winter Haven, as most of you know. My uh, youngest daughter, Kayla, is, is a senior this year and just finished what will most likely be her final year of volleyball uh, for Angie and I. Uh, for Angie and I, this is our final year of many years of competitive sports for our children. Our boys have uh, competed primarily in football, and while our girls mostly played volleyball. Uh, Kayla plans to compete in softball this year, but the end of volleyball kind of feels like the end of an era for us. Uh, we're not sad about it. Uh, we're not sad about it. There's been many, many hours spent with our family uh, going to place to place and doing what we do, but we see it as another milestone for us in our lives, which are many, full of many milestones. We're thankful, we're thankful for the mem- memories that we have. Now, I recognize that, that there are many Christians who don't do sports. Uh, they, I'm thankful for the body of Christ, which is made up of many people from various backgrounds uh, with many different interests. Sports in America, as you know, have, has many problems that we should avoid as Christians. We need to avoid those things. Sadly, the professional celebrity sports culture has negatively affected uh, our culture overall, but uh, especially youth, youth sports and youth, our youth. Uh, having, said that, having said that, athletics, I would still argue, gives us great opportunities for sanctification. Now, over the years we've had, as a family, we've had many trials associated with sports and what we do. There have been small problems, and there have been even some much bigger trials. But through it all, the Lord has used that, used athletics, to root out um, many sin issues, many sin issues in the life of my family, but also, more specifically, in my own life. Now, this is not an apologetic or defense for sports, though. The Lord uses many things in our, in our life to sanctify us and make us, making us more like Him. I've said it many times, trials and difficulties expose our sin, allowing us to identify sinful patterns and repent from them. As we live under the law of Christ, our sin becomes, as Christians, our sin becomes obvious as we face the difficult problems of life. You see, our flesh wants comfort and gratification. Our flesh is at war with the Spirit dwelling within us. And as we grapple with the difficulties of life, we encounter a myriad of things that that we want to be different because we want comfort. And as we wrestle with this reality, we have to reckon with God's holy law, 
which exposes our sin. Thankfully, God's grace, God shows grace to us when we humbly seek Him. But what we have to recognize is that grace does not lower His holy standard. Let me maybe say that again. Grace does not lower His holy standard. Grace only recognizes our inability to uphold His holy standard. In Matthew 5, 6, our Lord said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their need for the perfect righteousness of God. You see, God does not lower His holy standard, yet He still desires for His people to attain to it. You see, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you have it. Yet in this life, we do not and we cannot have it. That is the greatest problem facing men. The answer to this problem separates those who have been saved by grace from those who are working to attain salvation by human works. This answer, the answer to this question, truly separates the saved from the unsaved. Well, this morning we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. The king, we've called it the King and His Glory. We are currently studying the Sermon on the Mount very slowly. Uh, I know you guys probably think we should be moving a little quicker, but that's okay because we're going to take our time. We're going to end the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through This is what we've called the King's Kingdom Manifesto. Today we are continuing to study the crux of Jesus' main argument in His Sermon from Matthew 5, 17-20. Now, as we complete, the, complete these verses, we will consider the nature of man's righteousness versus the nature of God's righteousness. And in doing so, we're going to continue to grapple with the purpose of the law in the Christian life. So let me, leave, let me read our text, and then we'll pray and get started this morning. Our text is in Matthew 5, 17-20. Matthew 5, 17-20. You can read along with me. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least, called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you. We pray that you would be with us this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you would Uh, that your word would not return void by your power, that I would, as a preacher, that I would decrease, that you may increase. In Christ's name, amen. There was once a proud Englishman who was driving his Rolls Royce through the Alps. Enjoying his beautiful ride, he was startled when he was taking a tight corner at very high speed. A front spring broke without warning. He was able to avert an almost certain crash, but had to limp into the nearest Swiss town. Fortunately, he was able to call Rolls-Royce Limited back in England, and he explained the problem with the car to them. The very next day, 
a company mechanic came to replace the spring and was able to get him back underway. After his time in the Alps, the driver returned to England, his home, to find that he had not received a bill from Rolls-Royce. Perplexed, he called to ask them to check their records for the Swiss repair of a broken spring. After a short time on hold, a Rolls-Royce manager came on the phone and said, There must be some mistake, sir. I promise you there is no such thing as a broken spring on a Rolls-Royce. Obviously, his point was that Rolls-Royce quality would never allow such a thing to happen. Rolls-Royce was too good for that. Evidently, there, was, there were two rules at Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce, number one, had, never has quality problems. Number two, if there, was ever a, if there is ever a possible quality issue, see rule number one. Of course, this means that Rolls-Royce had convinced themselves and their customers that they never failed. They did this by simply ignoring the times that they actually did fail. At least they fixed the problem before they denied it existed, right? Can you imagine being so blinded by your self-righteousness that you believe that you never err? Do you, believe that, do you know that there are actually people in this world who believe that they never sin? There are others who legitimately believe that we can attain to sinless perfection. But is this possible? The, the Apostle John doesn't think so. He says in 1 John 1.8, 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. According to that verse, according to John, for one to think that they are, they are or could be without sin is self-deception. We lack the truth. Literally, we are lying to ourselves. Paul warns, warns us that we must be at war with our sinful desires. We walk by the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's Galatians 5.16. We trust in God's grace as we fight this difficult battle, right? Believing that we can be sinless is a dangerous lie because we don't win battles we don't think we have to fight. Let me say that again. Believing that we can be sinless is a dangerous lie because we don't win battles, the battles that we don't think we have to fight. Truly, the only way we can even think that we are sinless is by lowering God's bar of holiness. Let me say that again. The only way we can think that we are sinless is by lowering God's bar of holiness. This can be illustrated by an often repeated, often repeated yet probably embellished story about Charles Spurgeon. I found this story in an article by Matthew Payne. Spurgeon was at a conference where a preacher was teaching perfectionism in an outspoken manner. He even claimed to have reached a state of sinless perfection himself. Spurgeon didn't challenge him on the spot. Instead, according to the story anyway, he said, instead he, the next morning, poured a pitcher of milk over the man's head. The perfectionist responded with the kind of rage and hostility that you would expect from any sinner. Spurgeon had debunked this man's perfectionism, at least according to the story. Here's the truth, though. No person who has ever walked this earth has ever has even approached sinless perfection other than the Lord Jesus. Believing you can is a destructive Heresy. Like I said, the only way we can think that we are sinless is to grossly misinterpret and twist 
the requirements of God's law. Again, let me say that again. The only way that we can think that we're sinless is to grossly misinterpret and twist the requirements of God's holy law. Church, this was the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had twisted God's law into something man-made and worldly. And this will be the main point of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The the King's Kingdom Manifesto is what we've called it. Today, as we return to our study in Matthew 5, 17-20, we find ourselves studying the main proposition statement in this incredible sermon. In Matthew 5, 17-20, King Jesus reveals two shocking truths about kingdom righteousness. We've been studying that you must recognize that kingdom righteousness completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. And then secondly, we're going to see kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical righteousness. Let's briefly review that first shocking, what we've called the first shocking truth. Kingdom righteousness completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. Now, before I start my review, I want to to encourage you not to check out during this time. I know this is old territory for some of you, and we've been over this, Uh, but uh, Dr. Michael Grisanti, a professor at TMS, is fond of saying this. He says, repetition with variety is essential to learning. Let me say that again. Repetition with variety is essential to learning, end quote. I wrestle with how much I should review in my sermons. I do. I think review is necessary in an extended sermon series like this. In my reviews, though, I try to say things in a variety of ways to help you remember the truth of God's Word. I try to look at it from different points of view so that you, uh, it's not just a rote uh, just rereading what I've said before, but I want you to understand that I want you to get this. That's why I repeat things. Now, last week, during our equipping hour, one of you asked me how to get more depth of insight into God's Word. I would argue, I would argue that meaningful repetition will help you begin to make deep connections and gain insight into the truth of Scripture. Let me say that again. Meaning, let me repeat that. Meaningful repetition will help you begin to make deep connections and gain insight into the truth of Scripture. So with that, let's practice some meaningful repetition. Look at your text in Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In Matthew 5.17-20, Uh, form the transition from Jesus' introduction to the main body of the sermon. In Matthew 5, 3-12, he had given his introduction, commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are simply the description of the follower of Christ from beginning to full maturity. They start from the very beginning of salvation and progress to the point of suffering persecution for your faith in Christ. Then in Matthew 5, 13-16, he taught his disciples, uh, that, that is, he taught that his disciples, that is, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus' disciples were or are, are to live in such a way that they would preserve our current fallen world from a greater decay or decay rate due to, due to sin. Now his disciples are also to let their light shine in such a way that the world may see their good works 
Now let me emphasize, see their good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. But as we think about this description of the Christian life, a simple question surfaces. What defines good works? What are good works? And how do we know, in fact, that we are being salt and light? And what is our authoritative source for understanding good works? In Matthew 5.17, Jesus begins to unpack these difficult questions by saying that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Look again at your text in Matthew 5.17. Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. As, you, as we consider that, that verse, or consider that, we need to answer the question, what is the law and the prophets? Now, last time we saw that the law and the prophets include the entirety of the Old Testament canon. Jesus is saying that he did not come to nullify uh, the Old Testament. By the way, the same Old Testament that you have in your Protestant Bible. He didn't come to change or reinterpret anything in the Old Testament. According to Jesus, Jesus' words, everything stands in the Old Testament as it is. You could say it this way, that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. He says that in, again in Matthew 5.17. We, looked, we dealt with this in depth last time, so we'll just briefly review it. As I said last time, this topic is one of the most misunderstood uh, among those who claim, to be, claim the Christian faith. Look at your text at the end of 517. He says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now our Lord claims that he is the fulfillment of everything taught by the Old Testament prophets, including Moses. In his incarnation, Jesus fulfilled every aspect and every detail of the law. In the past two sermons, we've seen that the law is inextricably tied to the character of God as revealed in creation. As such, the law, as exemplified by the Ten Commandments, are founded in God's creation, as shown in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you want to hear that more, you go back and listen to those sermons. You could say, though, that his law is baked into creation. Proverbs 3.19 and 20 affirm that Yahweh founded the earth by wisdom. By wisdom. By discernment, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were split up and the skies dip, drip with dew. For this reason, no matter how hard man tries, he cannot change the basic facts of the world that we live in. I, I, again, we've said this many times, a male can't be a female because God made him male, right? That's the way it works. That's the way this world works. That God founded it in wisdom, He founded it according to His law, and it doesn't change. And I would say then that the Old Testament reveals the God of creation, and it also reveals His law. You might say it reveals His way. The way that things are. Just literally the way things are. The prophets demonstrate this. In that way, the Old Testament is not deficient in any way. It is exactly what Yahweh intended to reveal about Himself at that time. In it, in, it, in the Old Testament, in, that, in, that he, in the Old Testament, He revealed His Son, the Lord Jesus. The New Testament actually tells us that Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. That's in Luke 24, 27, Luke 24, 44, John 5, 39, Hebrews 10, 7. So what does Jesus mean then by fulfill? 
And that's, that's the question we need to ask. In saying this, Jesus means that he is carrying out or bringing full expression to the teaching of the Old Testament. As such, Jesus reveals, Jesus himself reveals its true meaning. Now, Jewish religious leaders had grossly misinterpreted God's law. Their belief system was a gross misinterpretation of God's intended purpose of his law, which is to reveal his holy character. Let me say that again. Uh, They misrepresented God's intended purpose of his law, which was to reveal his holy character. So when Jesus says that he fulfills the Old Testament, it means that he embodies the law and the prophets in all its holiness. He himself, he himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When you see Jesus, obviously we see him through his word, but when you see Jesus, you are seeing divine righteousness on display. In other words, what he did was holy and righteous because he is holy and righteous. Say that again. What he did was holy and righteous because he was or is holy and righteous. So, what he said and did reflected his holy character, holy and righteous character. Jesus fulfilled then the, three, the law in three ways. Three ways that Jesus fulfilled it. He, as, he consi- as we consider how Jesus fulfilled the law, we need to consider why the law existed. God gave His law, if you read Romans, you know that God gave His law, or if you read the Scripture, you know that God gave His law 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham and his seed. It exemplified God's holy character and kingdom expectations. It revealed the sinfulness of sin and man's need for grace. In, in the words of the Apostle Paul, it was our tutor unto Christ. That's in Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law has become a tutor, uh, our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The law then has revealed our need for Christ. Has revealed our need for Jesus. He has fulfilled the law by embodying its demands. He has fulfilled the law's moral demands. You may recall that I showed you Uh, God's law is founded in His holy character revealed in creation. I explained the purpose and true meaning of each of the Ten Commandments. At the the cross, Jesus fulfilled the the moral demands of the law. And as such, He fulfilled all righteousness. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law's demands, yet He took our transgressions upon Himself and suffered the Father's wrath in our place. According to Paul, we became the righteousness of God through faith in Him and His sin-atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. I quoted it earlier. Therefore, Jesus has fulfilled the the law's moral demands for His people. He also fulfilled the law's judicial commands. After giving the Ten Commandments, God gave Israel His law applied. You might call this Israel's law code. God gave His law applied to the nation of Israel. They were a nation set apart for Yahweh. All the laws related to things such as diet, cleanliness, and dress were God's standard applied to Israel during that time and in the land that God had promised. You see, they were to be a shining example of God's law applied to His people. God's people were to reflect reflect His holiness 
set apart from the nations surrounding them. As such, these laws, these laws of, of diet and cleanliness and, those, and so forth, these laws were an application of God's Ten Commandments applied to Israel. Now, in, his, in the United States, we have a law code generally based on the Ten Commandments. That's, that's how it's all set up. Which are universally binding to all mankind. So, God says, do not murder. We have a multitude, in the United States, we have a multitude of laws that enforce this command. Israel's law code does not apply to us, but God's law is binding universally. Do you all understand what we're saying? After Israel sent Jesus to the cross, they ceased to be a nation. Therefore, their law code was no longer binding to anyone. They rejected their Messiah, and God used Rome to destroy and scatter Israel. He set them aside until a later time. They rejected the chief cornerstone. They, <clears throat> therefore, and as you see in Matthew 21, Therefore, Jesus said to them that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. So, Jesus' death and resurrection triggered that warning, making their judicial law code obsolete. Jesus' death ultimately fulfilled the judicial requirements of the law by dying for sin. You get that? So, Jesus' death ultimately fulfilled all those requirements of the law by dying for sin. The punishment for sin was death. God had warned Adam that death was the price for sin. This was then the judicial demand of the law which Christ fulfilled on the cross. And Jesus also fulfilled the law's ceremonial obligations. If you study Leviticus in the Old Testament, you'll find that God commanded Israel to perform various sacrifices to atone for sin. These sacrifices were performed at the tabernacle and later in the temple. These sacrifices ultimately pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of man. His shed blood paved the way to enter the Holy of Holies. So when Jesus died on the cross, the Levitical priestly sacrificial system ended because they all pointed to Christ. They all pointed to His sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats never atoned for man's sin, but looked forward to a greater and perfect sacrifice. So when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, died on the cross, when when God poured out His wrath on Him, when the Father poured out His wrath on Him, there was no more. there is no more need for the Levitical sacrifices. He is the ultimate sacrifice. As such, Jesus fulfilled the law's ceremonial obligations for those who believe in Him. So, if Jesus fulfilled the law, then what is the Christian's relationship to it? That's the question. Earlier I said that this is where many who call themselves Christians go off track concerning the law and our relationship. You need to recognize that the law and the prophets always pointed to Jesus, the Son of God. He fulfills them, but what does that mean for the Christian? Well, here's the answer. When we are in Christ, when we are in Christ, we are no longer obligated to the law's demands because they have been satisfied. Before I was in Christ, I remained obligated to the law as my tutor, my cruel taskmaster, which leads me to Christ. The Apostle Paul 
says it this way in Galatians 3.24 and 25. We saw, I think we already saw this, that the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. Right? After I become a Christian, I have no further obligation to the law. But here's the catch. Not really, not really a catch in a bad way. I'm now obligated to Christ. I'm now obligated to Jesus. He has redeemed me from the requirements of the law. He is now, instead of, instead of the cruel taskmaster, He is now my benevolent master. I am now subject to His law. The law of grace. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, Christ is the holy God of creation. His law is the same law as it was given in the Old Testament. His law can be summed up in the same way as the Old Testament law. We obey the, the law of Christ by obeying the two greatest commandments, which sum up the law and the prophets. Luke 10.27 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. We obey these two commandments by understanding that they sum up the law. They sum up the law. Therefore, I recognize that obedience to the law of Christ displays my love for God and for my neighbor. Let me say that again. Obedience to the law of Christ displays my love for God and for my neighbor. I obey Jesus and His commands because I love Him and I know that He knows what's best for me. <clears throat> I always wonder when to stop. I guess a cough is a good time. You know, to get a drink. I obey Jesus and His commands because I love Him and I know that He loves me and knows what's best for me. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, grace is that which brings me to love God. And I love God, and if I love God, I long to keep His commandments. End quote. Jesus Himself put it this way in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When He says that, it, when he, says that he is saying that you will keep His commandments given in the New Testament. But here's what we have to recognize. Most of the Old Testament law, Jesus repeated it. The, the Ten Commandments, Jesus repeated. Now we've gone through how we apply things like the Sabbath. We've gone through that. If you're interested, go back and listen. But I promise you that Jesus has repeated, has repeated the Old Testament law. So we need to obey His law. His law is His law. Now, this is the reason, beloved, why Jesus contended for the permanence of God's holy law. He contended for the permanence of God's holy law, Matthew 5.18. Now, a quick housekeeping note. <laughs> I hate to say this, but housekeeping note, we just ended our review. We're now in new territory. So, look at your text in Matthew 5.18. For I truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Jesus starts this sentence with a formula, formula that He uses to add force to something He's about to say. He, we use a similar... We use something similar when we say something like, truly, truly, I'm going to tell you, a truly, or to tell the truth. Some people struggle with that phrase because, you know, they think, if, well, if I'm just telling the truth now, that means I'm lying before them. But we don't do it that for that reason. Let's be honest. Well, let's be honest. That's another one. We, we, we do it to add emphasis, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's adding emphasis. He's, he's, we, we do it to alert our listener to the gravity of what we're about to say. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In this case, Jesus was alerting His listeners to something that they desperately need to understand. Which is why we're taking our time to go through it. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. At the very end, after all is said and done, the current heavens and earth will pass away and will be replaced by the new heavens and new earth. Mark 13, 31, it says that very thing. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, again, His righteousness will be established or is established and it will not pass away. But when that happens, our Lord will say from His throne, Behold, I'm making all things new. That's Revelation 21, 5. In His new creation... Sin, it will be totally wiped out. It will be no more. And there will no longer be any curse. The curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3, uh, there will no longer be any curse. That's Revelation 22.3. The Apostle Peter tells us that righteousness will dwell there. That's in 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come upon the hearts. You see, things in the new heaven and new earth will be made new, completely new. There will be a completely new order of things. The old order will be completely gone, completely forgotten. And righteousness will, be, will reign there. You see, the, the written law will no longer be necessary. Now, for those who are lawyers and physicians, there won't be any need for lawyers and physicians in heaven. New heavens and new earth. But until that time, look back at your text in 5.18. Matthew 5.18. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Not the, the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. The New King James Version, New King James Version says, one jot, or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. The smallest letter, or a jot, translates the Greek word iota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. To Jesus' Jewish listeners, this letter would have been the same as the yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A stroke, or a tittle, literally means a little horn. In the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet, there are small horns or marks which distinguish or that distinguish one Hebrew letter from the other. This is similar to, if you know our modern fonts, the serif. The, the, the serif in our modern fonts, although the serif does not differentiate between letters, but, the, but in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter could literally be a difference between just one mark, one small mark or horn on the letter. Uh, sans serif, by the way, would be font without those small marks, if you didn't know that. Literally, Jesus is saying that the smallest letter written in the law will not be erased or done away with. 
Uh, but even the smallest part of a letter will not be annulled from the law or even modified until all is accomplished. That's what he says in 518. In other words, everything in the law will come to full fruition. Now you may be wondering then, how can the law be permanent? It looks like that Jesus is saying that one day, all, that, that there will come a day when all will be accomplished. We have to recognize, though, that the, heavens, the new heavens and new earth will be established in righteousness. The righteousness of God as currently revealed in the law of God. As such, Jesus contended for the permanence of God's holy law. It is not going to change. Even the psalmist understood that God transcends, transcends and will outlast the current heavens and the earth when he says... And, and it proclaims in Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. Church, <clears throat> if God remains, and He will, so will His righteousness. In the words of the psalmist, in Psalm 111, verse 3, Splendid and majestic is His work, and His righteousness will stand forever, or stands forever. There will be no need for the law, because everyone will live according to God's righteousness as revealed in the law. In, per, in Peter's words, the Apostle Peter's words, righteousness will dwell there. Now, before we move forward with this passage... I want to take a few minutes to consider the implications of Jesus' words in Matthew 5.18. First, in making this statement, Jesus contends for the inerrancy of Scripture. He contends for the inerrancy of Scripture. Our Lord clearly and absolutely contends for the script, that Scripture is inerrant. It is without error as God originally gave it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Don't miss that connection. Scripture has been breathed out by God down to every word, every letter, and even the smallest part of every letter. Every jot and tittle. God's Word cannot be changed. In Luke 16, our Lord doubles down on this contention by saying, in Luke 16, 17, but it is easier for earth, heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. I hope y'all are getting this. I hope y'all are getting this, that, that God's law is, is God's righteousness, and God's righteousness endures forever. I hope you're getting it. Beloved, our Lord taught the inerrancy of the Word of God. In the New Testament, Jesus referred to the Old Testament at least 64 times. He always affirmed it as authoritative truth. In John 10.35, Jesus affirmed that Scripture cannot be broken during an argument with some, uh, some Jewish leaders. And if Scripture cannot be broken, then it is authoritative truth. If it is authoritative truth, then it must be inerrant. By definition, truth cannot contain error. 
Not only did Jesus contend for the inerrancy of Scripture, I would also argue for those of you who have been going to or attending our uh, hermeneutic class, uh, equipping class, Jesus' statement affirms the historical grammatical hermeneutic. There is a situation recorded in Matthew 22 that illustrates Jesus' interp- interpretation of Scripture. You can turn there if you want, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew tw- 22, 23 through 46. Matthew 22, 23 through 46. Let's pick this up in Matthew 22, 23. 22, 23. It says, On that day, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and, he, and died having no seed. He left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third and down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. Now the Sadducees, as it says in the text, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They, want, they wanted, at the time, to catch Jesus in some supposed conundrum. So they quoted Deuteronomy 25.5, which teaches that, a, that the, widow of the, man, the widow of the man who dies shall marry her husband's brother. Then they gave the scenario of multiple brothers dying and her remarrying up to seven of them. So she had seven legitimate husbands. Then they asked in Matthew 22.28, In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. Of course, their question, the Sadducees' question, was meant to trip Jesus up, to to trick him, right? Let's pick up in Matthew 22, 29-31. In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken in not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead. Now, so basically he's saying, you don't understand, right? That the, you're looking at marriage from an earthly point of view, but in heaven, you know, it's not going to be that way. <clears throat> but regarding the resurrection of the dead. Now again, that's where their issue lies. That's what they were trying to get to. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, now, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, 32, verse 32, Jesus quotes Exodus 3, 6. Now, you might recall, this is the story of Moses at the burning bush. In that account, he told Moses, the, the Lord told Moses, that this would, I would say this would be the Lord Jesus. Uh, he, he told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is, he is not the God of the living, or the dead, but of the living. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, he goes on to say, he goes on to say, he is not the God of the dead or the living, which I've already said that. So with this statement, Jesus affirms the historical account of the Old Testament. He affirms the, the history and the, uh, and the existence of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. He also interprets Moses in the same way that Moses intended to be understood when he wrote the account in Exodus 3. He didn't spiritualize or reinterpret the story in any way. He understood it, 
and taught it exactly as Moses intended. Now I want you to note it, but here's what I want you to notice that there's something even more incredible. Speaking again of the historical grammatical hermeneutic that we've been talking about. He bases his powerful argument on one verb tense. On one verb tense. Yahweh told Moses that he is, not was, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Historically, a historical grammatical hermeneutic, historically, Moses lived several hundred years after the patriarchs. They had died many years before Moses, yet Yahweh was still their God. Jesus makes the point that the patriarchs were still living, therefore Yahweh was still their God. And his proof hinges on a single Hebrew verb tense. Not one jot nor tittle will pass away until all is accomplished. He is uh, right down to the very verb tense he's using to prove that there is there will be a resurrection. Again, this is a demonstration of the historical grammatical hermeneutic, and it is an affirmation that Scripture is without error, even down to the grammatical forms of each word. That's powerful, guys. In the words of John MacArthur, God's Word is is therefore authoritative, not only down to the smallest part of every letter, but also the grammatical forms of every word, because Scripture itself is without error. When it is believed and obeyed, it will save us from error. End quotes. You can turn back to Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Now, as you consider all that we've learned in these verses, you may be asking, and this is why we're taking so much time on this, why is Jesus making these assertions about the law? Well, in these verses, He has proven that kingdom righteousness fully concurs or matches the righteousness taught in the Old Testament. You see, you have to get this. Nothing has changed when it comes to His righteousness. He has shown that He did not come to abolish the Old Testament, that He came to fulfill the law and the prophets by fulfilling the law's moral, judicial, and ceremonial demands. He has contended for the permanence of Scripture. He has proven the inerrancy of Scripture. He has even demonstrated the historical grammatical hermeneutic which teaches us how to rightly divide the Word. And again, I ask this question, why is he making these critical assertions about Old Testament Scripture? Well, I would argue that he's addressing the most critical question facing anyone who claims the name of Christ, or really the name of Yahweh. What defines good works? What defines good works? Both Jew and Gentile must decide, both Jew and Christian must decide how they are going to define good works. Ultimately, Jesus, who is authoritative, by the way, is saying that God's law defines good works because God's holy law reflects His holy character. Let me say that again. Jesus is saying that God's law defines good works because God's holy law reflects His holy character. Guys, again, we have to get this. In our own day, 
People will say, people do say that truth is what? Relative, right? We define our own truth. This error has infected many who call themselves Christians. In these verses, Jesus is absolutely teaching there is an absolute basis for truth. We can truly know what is right and what is wrong. We can truly know what is moral and what is immoral. He says that these things are defined by the law of the eternally sovereign God. And God's law has not changed from the beginning of creation. We have shown that. We have proven it. It's it's true. And it will not change throughout eternity. As we've seen, even though God's law was written down at the time of Moses, it has always existed because of the holiness and character of God. He wrote it down to make it known to us. I would argue that Jesus appeared on the earth to demonstrate the law to us. You see, He defined good works before God. He demonstrated the righteousness of God. Do you all understand that? In John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus challenged the Jewish leaders. They had accused Him of breaking God's law. They had the hubris to do that. They would even accuse Him of doing the works of Satan when He cast out demons. But He said, He said this, If I do not, this is John 10, 37 and and 38. If I, do not, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Y'all understand that? He demonstrates through His works who He is. Ultimately, it was His works that showed He was from the Father. But see, on the other hand, the Jews of Jesus' day defined good works according to their legalistic interpretation of the law. Let me say that again. The Jews of Jesus' day defined good works according to their legalistic interpretation of the law. You see, they missed the entire point of the law. You know what that is? Hopefully you do by now. Our inability to keep God's law points to our need for grace found in Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows us our sin. In the words of Paul, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see, it is impossible for the sinner to keep the law of God. Even the Jewish leaders understood that God's standard of righteousness found in His law is impossible to uphold. They twisted the law and they invented their traditions because they recognized God's impossible standards. Their traditions were easier to keep than the law. They for sure were more complicated and they were definitely more detailed because they had, I think, 548 of the, the different commands. They were de- more detailed and complicated than the Ten Commandments, but as difficult as their traditions were, they were, and they, they were able to accomplish them by human effort. That was the point. Their, 
their traditions could be upheld by human effort. They could do it. Therefore, they were a cheap knockoff from God's law. Without a doubt, they cheapened God's holy standard and elevated the goodness of man. In effect, going back to our introduction, in effect, they had the, they had the Rolls-Royce definition of good. We are good because we say we are. After all, we meet our own standard for excellence, right? Our own standard for goodness. Beloved, let me just say it this way. Every man-made religion does this. Every man-made religion does this because it is the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrine, uh, doctrines of demons. That's the issue. Any religion that upholds works as our way of salvation is the doctrine of demons. The law is God's holy standard of righteousness. We fall short of it. We need God's grace. It's our tutor unto Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't try to live according to the law of Christ, but we do so because we love Him and we know He knows what's best for us. The law is not passed away. The law still stands. I hope this gives us a good foundation for understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Next time we're going to see the kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical, really all legalistic righteousness. In 5.19 he confronts those who would nullify the law. In 5.19 he also commends those who love the law. And in 5.20, he challenges those who misapply it. Challenges those who misapply it. As Christians, we need to understand and uphold the role of the law in the Christian life. As such, we need to recognize its proper application to us. We are not being legalistic to hold one another accountable to walk according to the law of Christ. Let me say that again. We are not being legalistic to hold one another accountable to walk according to the law of Christ. We are not. That is not legalism. We are not unloving. We are not being unloving to preach the truth of God's Word to a culture that rejects it. We're not being, that's not unloving. No matter what the culture tries to tell you, that is not unloving. The Apostle John says that we show our love for God by keeping His commandments. In 1 John 5, 3, he says, or proclaims, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments, by the way, are not burdensome. Burdensome. When we rightly understand and rightly apply His commandments, they are not burdensome. But when we twist them and misapply them, They become legalistic and burdensome. That was the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. That was the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, uh, verses 1-4, through I'm just going to quote verse 4, And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with as so much as a finger. Friends, 
friend, if you're here today and you feel the burden of the law, may I suggest two things. Either you don't understand the role of the law in the Christian life to point you to your need for Christ, His love and His grace, or you have not tasted God's goodness and grace. You have not come to a saving faith in Christ. Let me say that again. May I suggest two things if you feel the burden of the law. Either you don't understand the role of the law in the Christian life to point you to your need for Christ, His love, and His grace. Or, second, you have not actually tasted God's goodness and grace. In other words, you have not come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you're in that first group, I pray that you will seek understanding the understanding of God's law and His grace that you need. You see, we obey Him because He loves us and He knows what's best for us and we love Him. There's nothing burdensome about that. Jesus Himself said in John 14, 15, if you love Him, or me, you will keep My commandments. That is not burdensome. Now, if you're in that second group, if you're in that second group, I pray that you'll come to see that Christianity is not about following a bunch of rules. Say that again. Christianity is not about following a bunch of rules. Perhaps you see Christianity as a bunch of stuffy people keeping a bunch of stuffy rules. Or perhaps, perhaps you recognize the burden of the law. You know its requirements and you realize how far, you sh- far, how far short you fall. Either way, my prayer is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. If you're here today and you feel that burden of the law, You know that you fall short. You know that you need Him. I pray that you will trust in Him. He is good. His commands are not burdensome for those who rest, who find their rest in Him. He beckons you to come. I often quote these verses because I think they're so important for us. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning and this early afternoon. Just pray that you have been glorified by this preaching of your word. You promise, you say, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. I pray that the truth of Your Word has been proclaimed today and that You would be glor- have been glorified by it. I pray that Your Word would not return void, but it would do exactly as You t- intend it to do. In Christ's name, Amen.